Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Where do you personally lie on that line between optimism and pessimism? Hmm, that's a good question. 73 seconds after liftoff on June 29th, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger experienced a massive failure. Kathy Sawyer of the Washington Post wrote, the voice of mission control, Steve Nesbitt, who normally speaks crisply, said slowly over the NASA public address system, obviously a major malfunction has occurred. Phrases drifted down from mission control, appeared nominal through engine throttleback, apparent explosion. Tracking crews have reported that the vehicle had exploded. And shortly there was announcement that an impact point had been located in the ocean. The rumbling sounds from the sky gradually faded away. The scattered screams and shouts died. The immediate family of the astronauts were escorted quickly away to the crew quarters. Then this stretch of the Kennedy Space Center along the Atlantic Ocean beach was overwhelmed in silence. The beanstalk of cloud ending in a large blossom hung in the air for hours, breaking lazily into smaller puffs. The debris from the explosion, which occurred 18 miles downrange from the Space Center, continued to fall into the ocean for half an hour or more and thwarted the search teams, helicopters, planes, and ships that were converging on that spot. It was my senior year in high school, and I was watching it live in my high school library. The Space Shuttle, the Challenger, had exploded, but this was NASA. They had put a man on the moon. They had beaten the Soviets in the space race. They could do anything. How could this have happened? How could it happen to NASA? The human spirit dreams impossible dreams. May 25th, 1961, President Kennedy addressed Congress saying, First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this time period will be more impressive to mankind or more important to the long-range exploration of space. Yeah, the human spirit triumphs. How many commencement addresses this time of year echo this same theme? Reach for the stars and you'll achieve everything that you dream of. The human spirit triumphs. Yeah, in so many stories that we tell, the human spirit triumphs over any obstacle, whether that's conquering space, the final frontier, overcoming the elements of nature, or wrestling with personal demons. Wish upon a star for your heart's desire. Win that victory against that bigger, stronger, and more challenging opponent. We love the underdog in Cinderella stories, don't we? The human spirit will triumph no matter what the odds. That's our message. And even our children's stories breathe that message. Whether it's the little engine that could, I think I can, I think I can, or can we fix it? Yes, we can. From so early on, we learn that the march of human progress is going to overcome any barrier, any disease, any setback, any failure. Hope springs eternal. The human spirit triumphs. We see that same spirit throughout the ages. In the 5th century BC, the ancient Greek Protagoras declared, man is the measure of all things, saying what man can do is unlimited. The human spirit triumphs. And around 2,000 years or so before that, mankind said, come, 
Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Can we do it? Yes, we can. The human spirit triumphs. But it doesn't always, does it? Sometimes the human spirit triumphs, and as the kids would say, not. (laughs) Not at Babel. Not with those ancient Greeks who are long gone, and certainly not with us today. The space shuttle explosion brought that home, not to mention all the other numerous wars, diseases, disasters, accidents, earthquakes, fires, airplane crashes, oil spills, COVID, things that remind us every day just how fragile and frail the human spirit really is. The human spirit fails again and again and again. All of a sudden, the underdog no longer wins. And then despondency, despair, and depression set in. And under such pessimism, society deteriorates. People wallow in self-pity. They escape into the bottle or a pill container, drown out reality with their constant entertainment. Why work hard? Why do things hard? Why try to get ahead? You're just going to fall on your face. Look at what happened to those other people. The human spirit fails. But we don't want that message to go to our children, do we? Is it any wonder we tell them to keep chugging along, keep trying, keep saying, I think I can, I think I can. That's why we love to hear those stories where the human spirit triumphs, even when we know that's not reality all the time. So what's the solution for us? We've looked at both extremes. Is there some balance on the spectrum that's not overly optimistic, filled with false hopes, But on the other hand, not so despairingly pessimistic that we give up and stop trying. Is there some point in the middle, some point of realism that will bring us a happy median? My friends, my message today is to tell you that no matter where you fit on this line, where you choose to fit yourself in your current reality, that's not a long-term solution. That part of the spectrum that you find yourself in today might work for you for a little while, might get you through a challenge, might even allow you to be successful in this life. Friends, it's not a final solution. But we're going to find that the final solution doesn't lie anywhere on this line. Let's turn to the Tower of Babel and see why that is. As with Babel, so it remains today. Humanity at that time had witnessed how serious God was about sin. He had destroyed the world with the flood and everything that breathed except for Noah and his family on the ark, along with those animals, of course. But even then, it was through Noah that the line of the Savior and the promise of his coming would continue. After this worldwide flood, those eight on the ark began again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was God's message to them, and they listened. But how soon mortals forget. For in those centuries between Noah and Abraham, humanity turned away from God once again. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a place in the land of Shinar and settled there. This would have been where modern-day Iraq is, part of the Fertile Crescent in ancient times. Here was good, flat farmland between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, vital water supplies to that part of the world. What a good place to settle they had found. Plenty of food to sustain them. And look at their ingenuity and their technology that they had. These were no sun-blaked clay huts with mud holding them together. No, they were bricks with tar for a permanent home. 
The march of human progress. Come, let us build ourselves a city, something that would offer them safety and security, with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. A city that would give them fame and status. So these people must have thought that they had it all. Sustenance, security, status, fame, and fortune. What more would they need? The human spirit, oh, was triumphing. And are we any different? When our bellies are full and we're safe and sound in the comfort of our own home and we have a pretty good name in the community, we've got family and friends who love us, isn't that what life is all about? Isn't that why we work hard chugging along? Is that our life's purpose and ambition? Simply sustenance, security, status? But we do at least give a nod towards God, don't we? We say our prayers and we have our days of thanksgiving. We, we fellowship here at worship, at church. Well, you know, those people at Babel, maybe they thought the same thing. Maybe they were giving a nod to God, too. When it says they wanted a tower that would reach to the heavens, maybe they viewed this tower as their church, as their place of worship, their spiritual center, so to speak, to bring them heavenward closer to their God. Yeah, they were giving themselves a nod to God. But notice how they kept their God with a little G inside their own little box. God was good as long as he fit into what they wanted. God had told them through their father, forefather Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But instead, these people at Babel were determined not to be scattered over the face of the earth. Rather than listen to their God in a box, they dictated to him, this is how it's going to be. We're going to settle in one place altogether. And we live in a country that gives a nod to God. Sure, there are some vocal voices that are anti-God, but for the most part, depending where you lie on that optimism, pessimism line, we still live in a mostly morally right society, if not strictly religious. But even then, that only goes as far as how well God fits into our plans, our schedule. You see, we have coins that have in God we trust emboldened on them. Aren't those great sounding words? But do we really? Doesn't America trust more on their economic and military power? We pledge that we're one nation under God, but then we live as if we are over God and he is under us. We have all this talk about God in our country, but in our society, God has become so generic that it can fit almost any religion, anytime, recreating God in our own image of the moment, keeping him in our own little box. But at times of tragedy... We have prayer and we have memorial services and we hold those. But rather than seeking the one true God, we use generic words, mostly there to reignite the human spirit so that our citizens will strive towards triumph. How much has this Americanized religion infected even our mindset? Are we content as Christians with just a generic nod toward God once in a while? Thinking that, well, I'm all right since I have food and shelter and a pretty decent life. Friends, such lukewarmness is deadly. The risen Lord in his glory says this from Revelation chapter 3. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are in fact wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Now, it's so interesting at Babel how God's judgment on them was also an act of mercy. And let me explain. Our Lord, the God of grace, who freely makes those promises and faithfully always keeps them, he didn't act in an arbitrary way against those people. We know that our God is present everywhere. Omnipresent is the churchy word. He knows all things. But to emphasize that he truly did want to give his attention to the situation on earth, and he dealt with it fairly and justly, Scripture says this in verse 5, and it's so interesting, that the Lord came down to Babel to see. And what does the Lord conclude? Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And maybe you're puzzled thinking, well, that sounds pretty good. The human spirit is triumphing. They're going to get their act together and accomplish anything they want to. And that is good from the perspective of humans. Yet... In the wonder of God's creation, even in the fallen spirit of humanity, we can be so powerful. As the very crown and pinnacle of the Lord's creation, we have so much control over the things of this earth, so much so that working as a team, they could easily deceive themselves into thinking they do not really need God anymore. Ah, that's the problem. If God had allowed them to proceed as planned, his people would have been lost to their own imagination and desires. Nothing would have broken that deception except for the fires of hell, which by then it would have been too late for them. So the Lord in his mercy as well as his justice declares, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord, the triune God, and note the us there in that passage, came down. He acted. And what a serious judgment he had. Unlike the flood, which was horrible and devastated everyone, it was truly just one generation that was impacted. How many more generations in the millennia since Babel have suffered because of the confusion of languages? How much mistrust, how much hatred, how many wars, how much bloodshed has resulted from Babel? But is not all this earthly trouble worth it if it brings us closer to God? You see, what would have happened to us at Babel if God's promise of the Savior had once and for all been forgotten right there? They certainly would have thought they needed no God, a need for a Savior, not a chance. Where would you and I have ended up had God not acted at Babel? You see, my friends, this severe judgment at the time of Babel was also a merciful judgment, an act of the Lord who abounds only in grace and mercy. Remember I said earlier that any point you position yourself on this line, on this spectrum of optimists and pessimists, it's not really a solution, at least not a long-term one. This entire line between unbridled optimism triumphing and pessimism despairing is centered on what? It's centered on the human spirit. But our solution is more spiritual. Our solution actually is off the line completely. Our solution is centered on the Lord and in fact what he did at the cross. And friends, this doesn't mean just giving a nod toward God or speaking religious words at the right occasion. But note, this also doesn't mean beating up on someone you don't like when they do share religious words at such an occasion, like after the recent school shootings. 
Remember, we are not the judge of what's in someone else's heart. We look after our own heart and our own mind, and that should certainly keep us busy enough. My friends, this solution for us, this long-term solution, disconnects us from our human perspective, and we look at the spiritual. But that's a radical change, and we can't do that on our own. It takes the work of God. It takes the work specifically of the Holy Spirit that we, in fact, celebrate today. The Holy Spirit working through the Lord's Word and the Lord's sacraments here before us. That is what can change us radically. That can tear us away from that line on pessimism and optimism and focus us solely and completely on the cross and Jesus. That's what we see happening on Pentecost Day when Peter preached. He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He kind of throws that in there at the end. And with those words, the Holy Spirit cut them to the heart. Bless you. They despaired of any hope in their own human spirit, and they desired instead to know how they could be saved. Peter continued with these wonderful words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he continued with even better news for you and I today. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us. Peter's talking about us. The human spirit fails, but the Holy Spirit prevails. And my friends, this changes everything. Yeah, we still chug along trying to do our best, but not because we believe the human spirit is going to triumph ultimately. Rather, we chug along because we want to use the gifts, talents, and abilities that our Lord gave us for his glory. So then when we tend towards optimism or experience success in our own life, we don't credit our own ingenuity, the ingenuity of the human spirit. We see it as a blessing, which it truly is, and we thank God for it. Because without the Lord, the human spirit will ultimately fail. That's the lesson at Babel. But the Holy Spirit prevails. That, my friends, is the lesson of Pentecost And then on those days that we tend towards feeling pessimistic, feeling the heartaches and pains of life, the accidents, disasters, the tragedies, the shootings of this sinful world, rather than falling into despondency and despair, then we can turn to the merciful Father in heaven who knows all things, watches all things, has a plan for good coming out of anything that happens in this world. And I'll conclude with these words. Nothing can snatch you out of our Father's hand. Jesus said, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. My hand who was pierced with nails for you. I will hold you forever. In fact, we know that Jesus on the last day will come and take us out of this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. That is where the real triumph comes, my friends. So take heart. And stay centered on Jesus, in whose name I ask all these things. Amen.